0: I'm here today with Rainier van Noort, historical martial arts instructor and translator of a dozen or more historical fencing treatises. You can find him and his many works at bruchius.com. That's where you'll find *Ense et Mente*, which is his sort of brand through which he disseminates his extraordinary output. So, without further ado, Rainier, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, guy. Well, uh, thank you for uh, for having me. All
0: well, right, it's nice to see you. Uh, I'm not sure we've met before, have we? No, I don't think we ever have. No, I don't think we have. Okay. Which is extraordinary, I mean, given that we're not... <laughs> we move in such similar circles. We should We should have crossed paths at some point.
1: We should, but I, I hang out in slightly different events than you did for a while. And then around the time that I moved to Norway, you uh, you moved away from Finland. So it seems you've been avoiding me.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm scared of the competition. That's what it is. Uh, okay. So you mentioned you're in Norway now. Um, but you, you come from the Netherlands, right? Yep. Um, okay, so I'm, I am fascinated that anyone can translate historical treatises into their own language. Translating it into a language that isn't your first language is magic. How do you do it?
1: Well, I, I think as a Dutchman, I, I may have had a, a step up. It's, it's different now, but uh, it used to be compared to the countries around us that in the Netherlands, the people, the children there learn more languages younger. Um, I think right. uh, other countries are catching up now. I know my daughter is, uh, in addition to speaking Norwegian and Dutch, she's speaking a lot of English as well, which is amazing at, at 10 years old. Um, but in the Netherlands, when I grew up, we started getting English at about 11, 12, and then two or three years later, French, and another year later, German. Um, So that gives a strong basis in in languages. And then in addition, I did the the highest um, tier of school, um, middle school. So that's in the Netherlands, that's from 13 to 18 or so. I had the highest tier where you add uh, Latin and Old Greek to it. Oh God. (laughs) um, At least for some time. Uh, And I think especially that has, has been helpful um, partly because you you get even more grammar thrown at you, but also partly because these classes basically had to teach through translation. So, I mean, the only reason to learn Old right. Greek is to, to read texts and translate them. So, with hindsight, I realized I, I basically learned translating in school. So, that's, ah, that's on one hand. Very handy. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, and then on the other hand, um, I studied geology and. Most of my classes were taught in in English, and all of our work was done in English. So from from that, I went to university at eighteen, um, been been essentially working in English, um, and I think that's given me a, a good basis to to continue from, wow. uh, and 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 the ability to translate into into English to some degree.
0: So I guess the takeaway for that is um, ideally go to school in Holland if you can. And if that doesn't work out, then training does actually work. Yeah. Well,
1: I would say that by now, uh, a lot of the other countries here in Europe have caught up, uh, caught up and are also teaching more languages younger. uh, is the impression I have. I think language education on the whole has grown up a lot.
0: It's definitely not the case in Britain. Not at all. Like, like, my, my eldest daughter is 15, and she's doing her GCSEs, which are kind of the exams you take when you're 16. And she is not doing a single language other than English. Oh, wow. Right? I mean, she, ha- she also has a 400-and-something-day streak on Duolingo in Finnish, just because she felt like keeping up her Finnish. But that's her. That's entirely on her. <laughs> right? But the, um, yeah, the schools here are not particularly interested in, in teaching people like, foreign languages. We don't like foreign now we're british god damn it well, the world yeah. just speak english it's a terrible terrible terrible, terrible yeah. state of affairs
1: anybody who speaks finnish as a non-first language or even as a first language i have to have to be impressed with <laughs> regardless of
0: that <laughs> yeah fair um okay so do you mind me asking why did you move away from the netherlands to norway um,
1: because i got the opportunity basically um, okay. After 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 getting my uh, master's degree or the equivalent at uni, I, I did a PhD as well in Utrecht. And then I, I stayed there for a while as a postdoc. And at some point, uh, Dutch law dictates you can only get so many temporary contracts. So they, they kicked me out. Uh, and I ended up working for a big international cement company doing applied concrete research. And that was near Rotterdam. So we, we bought a house there. My, my spouse and I, we moved there. Um, and we had our, our daughter and I worked there for about three years. And just before I accepted that job, I also applied for, a, I, I also met a German lady working in Norway at a conference. And that was an interesting talk. And then she sent me a vacancy, but I just accepted a job. So I told her, "Oh, that's, that's very interesting, but I've just accepted a job. So I can't really, you know, it's bad form to, to switch right yeah. away. So, about two and a half years into my, my job at the cement company, I got a, another vacancy through my network at the same institute, the same lady. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'll just apply. And, you know, maybe Not I get well. a trip to Norway. And if it goes even further than that, that's, that's the point where we need to actually decide anything. And until then, it's all fun and games. So I, I sent in an application. I had a telephone interview. I was flown to Norway for an in-person interview for a day. And then I got the job offer. So then uh, my spouse and I, we had to actually make a decision. And um, well, the, the, the short of it was Norway has always been on my list, my very short list of countries I would like to live. I, I, I love this country. I always have. Um, and our daughter was two. So we realized that if we moved at that time, our daughter would just perfectly adapt to, to life in Norway. Right. Whereas if we waited for another opportunity to do anything, we'd be stuck in the Netherlands until our daughter was 20 at least. So with right. that scary foresight, we um, we took the jump. And it, it was for a two-year yeah two year poster contract initially, but luckily that got extended into a full contract. So I've been here since 2014.
0: Wow. OK, so you're practically Norwegian then? Jura. <laughs> Excellent. Um, oh, and I should, I should, I should go back and, and correct the intro because I I didn't remember your PhD, and so I just called you Rainier Van Noort. said doctor, Rainier Van Noort.
1: I oh, know. that's no. it's not it's yeah. not know, oh, no, no.
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but it sounds good, right? Um, okay, so uh, at some point in all of this studying languages and going to university to do geology and you know phd and what have you you must have picked up a sword at some point how, how did that happen
1: so that's the other interesting thing i uh, as a kid i was really interested in in knights and, and swords and things and the, the the medieval lego was always my favorite so i always had arguments with my friend because i wanted to buy build a castle and play with the knights and he wanted to build spaceships um right. So eventually one of us would win and the other would uh, gradually go with it. And then that kind of disappeared out of my system for a bit. Then in in high school, uh, a friend got me into Warhammer. Um, So I did that for a few years. I I wasted a lot of money on that.
0: Um, No, you spent a lot of money on that. It wasn't wasted. That's money well spent.
1: Well, I, I, I traded most of, uh, most of the Warhammer I had. I, I traded that for a pocket knife when I moved to Norway. So, yeah, it's money well spent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um,
1: and um, I kind of like the whole, the idea that you could do sword fighting that just never came up to me. It never popped into my mind that right. it could be an option. Then uh, as I was doing my PhD, a friend of mine went to a fencing club and said, hey, why well, don't you join me? So I did that for about two years uh on and off because i had some field works and stuff and then in that time i bought a a Hyundai sword i still have it for some reason my humway swords don't break um
0: <laughs> i
1: got myself one of these uh practical oh Hyundai
0: yes i i know those swords very well
1: early 2005 and you know, I bought a sword that says "practical hand and a half," and it still didn't occur to me that that would mean there would be people actually using it. You know, it was right there in the name, right. but even that wasn't enough. So what happened also in 2005 is I got an invitation for a summer course in sword fighting that would be given close to where I lived, and my spouse had some surgery, so we couldn't travel. So I said, you know what? Oh, I'll just do this uh, this one week summer summer course in sword fighting. It was more um, stunt fighting with an interest in, in well, calling out Hema, at least. Um, okay. And that got me hooked. So that was organized by the Order de the Nordwind. That uh, was Yuval Kuipers and uh, Rauke Pau. And they were just basically just starting out as well. They've been at it for about a year. Uh, so I, I joined the course. I liked it a lot. I stayed with uh, with that group for a couple of years. And, um, and 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 that way, I you know started going to events, started learning more about HEMA, starting you know, getting access to sources on the internet, and and looking at that, basically. Yeah, it just went.
0: Okay. On the side. So, so at some point, you decided you were going to sit down and translate one or other of these sources. What what made you do that? The internet. The internet made me do it. yeah right okay
1: uh it was was late 2009 or so and i was um i was sick Uh, i think i had a stomach flu so my head was feeling fine but my stomach was quite upset and i was uh, at home and then somewhere on the internet people were talking about sources and i think bruchius was was mentioned there uh and we'd been trying a bit of the paulus hector maya sickle translation before that but um uh, somebody mentioned Brugius and and people talking about it, and I was like, "Hey, here, here I am, a Dutch guy uh, with with an interesting sword fighting." And there's a Dutch book that at that time I wasn't really interested in rapier wow. yet. But I figured if I make a translation, which uh, at least I speak the language, if I make a translation, then maybe other people can can use it and and bring this this particular source back to life. So I I started doing that, uh, and I made this horrible horrible translation
0: um your first one is always horrible always yes yes (laughs) unless you're a genius
1: first 20 20 (laughs) are horrible at least um uh but as i was making this translation i was like also realizing that that work was more interesting than i'd initially thought um Mm -hmm. so i was also building an interest and Mm -hmm. that friend that took me to olympic fencing a couple of years before they came to me and and said hey hey, erenir um I got an interest in rapier fencing. Do you have any idea why I could do that in the Netherlands? Because you do sword fighting now. And I was like, well, you can't do that anywhere yet. But I have a cunning plan. Ah. So um, we ended up renting a hole close by. We lived in the same town. We rented a hole and um, we just took our old foils and, and this book and we started playing around with it. And, um, yeah, that's where it, uh, where we started getting into rapier and
0: Wow, okay. There's a lot of stuff to unpack there, Um, but let me just sort of start off with, I'm guessing that most of the listeners don't know who Bruchius is or was, um, and what his book is about. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that you started out by translating something from Dutch into English, and that makes perfect sense, because how many people can actually read Dutch? Well, there's the Dutch, and that's about it. It's about
1: 25 million, Um, I think. Uh, There's also uh, some other places.
0: Right, but but it's not it's not exactly a huge language base compared to say like English or Chinese or Spanish. Um, yes. So so fascinating that you take this Dutch source and then like translate it into English so that we could all enjoy it. But um, like, who was Bruchius? Tell us about him.
1: Yeah, so Bruchius was a uh, fencing master who was active most of his life in the Netherlands, but he was born in Germany. So based on the research that I did together with John Schaeffer, he he was probably born in Zweibrücken in around 1630. Um, we, we found a baptism record for a uh, Johann Georgius in uh, on 17 December 1630, uh, which may have been our book. So that's around the time that he was born. And we also know he was born in Zweibrücken because that's on one of his portraits. So then he... Um, At some point he started working as a fencing master in Heidelberg, which is a big town in Germany. And a couple of years later, 1655, I've got my records here, so I can just look it. Uh, He came to Utrecht, uh, according to the notes we found, he was invited by some German nobles to become a fencing master there in Utrecht. So um, he's he's allowed to to start teaching there and he does that for a while. He gets married to, uh, to a German lady. And there are some kids. Um, and then at some point, he moves from Utrecht to Leiden um, to become the fencing master there. So that looks to be, yeah, it's about 1660 he moves to Leiden uh, and he becomes the fencing master in Leiden at the university. Um, so he spends uh, some time there. And then in 1671, he publishes a book on fencing. Um, which is the the book that we were talking about, the grondige beschrijving van the scherm of the Wapenkunst. So that's that's published. Um, and then after a while, he decides to go back to Utrecht again. Let me check. Yes, he's uh, he's going back to Utrecht in about 1680-ish. 1681 or 1680 or so yeah 1680 Uh, and then he's the fencing master in Utrecht one of the fencing masters in Utrecht up to his death in 1718 so you know apparently fencing masters grow old
0: Um, apparently wow okay so so 17th century Germany mostly um, and he's then obviously mostly teaching rapier so you're the, you're translating a, yeah. So are you're, you're translating a source for with a weapon that you're not terribly familiar with. I can see pros and cons to that because you're not you're not going to read your own current interpretation of rapier into your translation, but also you're not going to have the sort of background to in in some places perhaps understand exactly what's going on on the page. So. How, how does how did that? You know, how did you balance
1: that? Well, that's where the horrible translation comes in, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. I I did my best to. I always do my best to give a translation that's first and foremost representative of what's actually on the page, and um, mm-hmm. I try to keep interpretation to to a minimum. Um, Lately in my last few works I've been a bit more forward in in making things a bit clear because I've come to realize that where I feel sometimes that i'm'm I'm, I'm, uh, and also through reviewing translations that other people did where they asked me to could you, could you take a look at this I've come to realize that sometimes when you preserve the the fakeness that's on the page, you may actually understand what you're preserving, but a reader who hasn't seen the original or never looked at the original is going to be completely lost. so somehow you, mo- you need to balance that. Um, but yeah that, that first translation I uh, basically a lot of the technical terms which you know they were uh, Italian terms of origin then changed into German when Bruggius learned them and then when he wrote in Dutch he changed the Dutch, the Dutch the German grammar into Dutch which is luckily fairly similar and then I yeah. decided to then change that into English
0: <laughs> oh so god oh, I got the... some um, horrible horrible things there ah mm. oh, so do do you now have like uh i don't know a, a chart or a glossary of this is the dutch term this is the italian term and this is the english term do you have a table like that somewhere
1: uh i i have to do a new one for for each translation
0: um, I yeah of course know. that's but i mean do do you have one for bruchius
1: I have one for Brüggers. I, I, I try to, to have a table like that with original term and my English translation mm. uh, in each work that I do. So that, and I also try to be okay. consistent in only using, like when it's a technical term, I will try to be consistent yeah. in only using my translation for that technical term and not for any other uh, words or at least not, yeah. can, so that you as a reader can also know if it says um, uh, to disengage, for example, that it will refer to caviera, cavara, caviera ca, ca, something like that Yeah. Um, so that you can, sure, yeah. you can know it's uh, consistent
0: there Fascinating uh, okay is Bruchus's book, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the title, I'm sorry but it'll be in the show notes and people can go there and they can see how it's all spelled out and I'll copy and paste it from your website so it'll be accurate <laughs> um, but would you say it's actually a good fencing book?
1: I think it's a decent fencing book, actually. Um, okay. I think it's, it's it's not a bad one to work from. Um, so a lot of these 17th century books, at least the ones that I've looked at, they will combine a theoretical part uh, with with lessons. And, and the balance <laughs> between these two things changes a bit. So first they'll explain uh, what the main terms mean uh, what they are and then they'll just give lessons and i think bruges had a, a decent balance in in giving some theory so that you can understand sort of what's happening and then 212 lessons to play with and and for us getting started that means we have a big selection of lessons to choose from yeah uh, and to just experiment with and, and get better at
0: so just, just to put a, that in context, Capaferro provides about forty three plates, I think, and so probably about a hundred drills, something like that. So it's yeah. it's twice as twice as it has twice as much technical content as Capaferro, for instance.
1: Perhaps. But That's the lessons that? are sometimes also quite uh, succinct. Quite succinct. succinct. Sure. Um, but of course uh-huh. working on that, I, I didn't just read Brugius in isolation when I, when I started doing Rapier when I started trying to learn this I, I also bought any book I could uh, in English and, and read it so Fabris has been a very important support there um, sure. Thibaut was one of the things I read early that I wish I had time to, to read again now, now that I know a lot more um,
0: I, I think we're overdue a new translation of Thibaut because um, uh, Mr. Greer I think it's Greer who translated Korean, yep. it in, like, 2001, 2002. Um, it's a pretty good translation. I think he does a pretty good job of it, but it's, you know, it's 20 years old, and, you know, it would be good if someone would go to Thibault and, you know, translate the whole thing. I have, like, photographs of the entirety of the inside of um, the National Fencing Museum's copy of Thibault, so I have the scans. If you if you would like to translate Thibault, I can, I can hook you up. <laughs> thank you and then 20 years later we, you, he comes out of his hole holding this gigantic translation saying it's finally done because <laughs> the book is now huge make a place where, <laughs>
1: where i can either translate tebow make you happy and, and michael chadister uh, angry or translate Schiffer and make him happy and you're uh, you angry so i think i'll just make both of you angry and refuse to do either
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a very good idea yes um, yeah, and honestly, Michael's further away, so the chances of you getting into trouble is, yeah. Yeah, he's
1: also fairly short, so.
0: <laughs> but he's a pretty good fencer, so I, I wouldn't underestimate. Um, yeah. Excellent, okay. Now, um, I, have, I have a question here that I know you've read it, um, about translation. We've we discussed it a little bit, but I've done a bit of translation myself. And so I know how hard it is. And so I'm just curious from a kind of technical perspective, let's say, let's say I dumped a fencing book on your lap that you had agreed to translate and you'd never seen it before. And this is, this is the book you're going to translate. What do you do to start creating the translation? How do you go about it?
1: Ideally, if, if I have the time, I would first make a transcription of the work, um, that I would then next change into a, a translation. There's two reasons for that. The first is that if I have a transcription and I then start translating that, I, I I can easily, more easily check that I don't miss anything. I don't skip parts, unless of course I've skipped them in the transcription. And I can <laughs>
0: sure.
1: better refer back and forth to what I'm typing and what it's saying. Uh, and also later when I'm doing review, I, I can more easily use the control F to find instances of words that I need to find. Right. Um, yeah, I so did the same That's thing. an even bigger uh, reason. So pref- preferably first transcription. Then uh, for the translation, um, it's just checking each individual word and then checking what these words together mean in the original language and then try to, to say the same thing in the target language, preferably in, in, a, in a similar way. Uh, which doesn't mean exactly using the same word, the, the words in the same order, because that's not a similar way. That's a wrong way in English if it's a in right language. Right but but trying to pervade the, the way it's said as well as what's said. Uh, what we used to do in 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 old Greek class because I dropped Latin uh, is is we just write a translation above each word, each individual word,
0: uh, and okay. then
1: try to puzzle that's that a into uh, a sentence. But you always have to make sure also like there's a lot of idiom. Um, you have to make sure you, you kind of take that into account. Um, and it's always nicer if you can translate that with a, um, you know, a similar kind of idiom in the, in the target language.
0: Right. And, and the context changes the meaning to the point where, where your individual, when, if, there's, if a particular word could have multiple meanings, like, the English word set, for example, right? There are at least seven completely different meanings of the word set. Like, a jelly might set firm, <clears throat> or you might set a bag down, or, um, you know, a badger lives in a set. Okay, that's a double T, but, you know, spelling's not necessarily consistent. And it's just, it's the, words have these absurdly many meanings. So if you, if you write down the wrong meaning of that word in, in your list, it'll pop up in its context as being, hang on, that doesn't make any sense. No. Um, yeah, so. I
1: think most of the time you, you take that out at, at context. Uh, I've also found that um, a combination of Google Translate and the uh, Wiktionary website can be very helpful. Not that I put a sentence in Google Translate and trust what's coming out, but I, I can <laughs> yeah, use it sure. to, to, to get a starting point. Uh, and then either say, well, right. that's completely wrong. But it it helped me, or uh, or or to say, well, actually that that fits.
0: Yeah. Now, when I'm translating from Italian, there are some fantastic uh, sort of old school Italian dictionaries online, like Battaglia's dictionary, for example. Yeah. And it's it's sort of Italian to Italian, but it it goes, you know, it, some some of these words have become obscure, and you can find their meaning in these. Oh, dictionaries. Do you have similar resources for Dutch or German?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, there's not a lot of works in Dutch to translate, so I kind of ran out on that. Um, for okay. German, there's Wörterbuchnetz, uh, which is a combination of all dictionaries uh, made searchable. Okay. So, yeah, I, I do use that from time to time as well. Uh, if, if, yeah. if, if Wiktionary doesn't help me enough, then, uh, then we look at Wörterbuchnetz, And uh, there's the Grimm and some other dictionaries.
0: Right, yeah. It, it's just it occurs to me how much easier we have it to the translators who went before. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, excellent. Okay. Now on a sort of similar question, you have. and I am going to try the the title of this one because you know why not? Okay, I'll just sound a bit silly. Okay, there's a book written by an Irishman called Alexander Doyle. New Alamo dish. Hang on. New Alamo Ritterlich Fecht und Skirmkunst, right? Which is the new fashionable knightly art of fencing and defence in German. Okay, so you've translated this from German into English, right? Yeah. My question is, why on earth would an Irishman produce a fencing book in German? Well,
1: essentially the same reason Bruchius wrote a book in Dutch. He um we I haven't been able to find a lot about Doyle um, online about where he, how he lived what he did etc. But as far as we'd be able to find he was working in Germany. Um, do, do you remember what I wrote? I haven't actually checked that part. I guess. Uh,
0: uh, I don't. I don't have it in my head. Um, uh, he, he
1: was uh, the fencing master in Mainz at the court of the Archbishop Elector and Archchancellor Lothar Franz from von Schönborn. Uh, so he was the, the, fencing, the court fencing master there uh, and he published his book as he was working there, dedicated it to his uh, employer uh, and it was published in Nuremberg and Frankfurt. So we see that more that these fencing masters travel around. Fabrice, of course, famously... Mm-hmm came from Italy, then then worked in, um, in Germany at a high nobles court and then at the court of the Danish King before going back home via Paris. Um, there's there's a, lot of, um, a lot of travel traveling fencing masters.
0: So do you think Doyle wrote the book in German, or do you think he wrote it in English and had a friend translate it into German so his patron would like it? I,
1: have, I honestly have no idea.
0: Okay. That, that, that's, that, that's a good answer. I'm just, I'm just curious because it just, it strikes me as one of these sort of fencing curiosities that you see it and you go, that it doesn't make a great deal of sense. And wouldn't it be great to find the manuscript and then we'd know?
1: Well, yes, but I, I, I do expect he would have written it in German. He'd probably been there for a while. Uh, and based on my own experience okay. living here in Norway, I've been here seven years now and i, I speak mm-hmm. reason reasonable norwegian especially considering i never took any courses and uh, never found the okay. time to do that so just by by being immersed in the language and this is in a time when everybody also speaks english um right so sure. he, he would have been working in germany uh at a time that speaking foreign languages was maybe less uh, uh common at least in in, in everyday life than it is now, I imagine. So he would have been forced to learn German more than I am forced to learn Norwegian.
0: Ah, fair point, yeah. I I just think my own experience of living in Finland, I did learn Finnish and I got it to the point where I actually taught a class in Finnish and I sweated my balls off getting ready for that class. And this is like fairly early on, it's the fifth year anniversary of my school. So I've been there for five years. And after my class where I was just, I was just a wreck because Finnish is a really hard language. And also back then the, the Finns were not used to hearing bad Finnish, right? Because there were relatively few foreigners in the country and most of them, you know, most Finns speak English. And so the Finns honestly would just, they would honestly not understand you if you made minor mistakes, Right? Whereas, you know, everyone who speaks English is, is used to hearing people speaking English as not their first language. And you, you just get used to sort of making allowances for different ways of saying things. But so after, after this class, one of my students came up to me and said, you know, when you speak Finnish, all of your authority just evaporates. It's <laughs> like, so, oh, well, fuck that. I am never teaching a class in Finnish ever again and I didn't I haven't (laughs) I mean I I still know what 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 to do when the tax office sends me a letter you know I know you know do I need to send this to my accountant right now or you know can I do something with this myself and so my finish exists but it's it's it will never be at the point where I can write a book in it oh my god that would be hard But you manage. Did you you
1: also sometimes have like this this weird confusion in your head where where languages start mixing up? I I I have some horrible language mix ups in my head. Oh God!
0: I have that for languages other than English. So, for example, um, we there was a time when I spoke reasonably good Italian. My spoken Italian is very rusty now, but uh, you know I've I've had happy conversations about historical fencing in Italian Um, and. My wife and I went to Italy, and this is a long time ago, and in the taxi, Italian, Spanish, French, and Finnish, all mixed up, right? And it was like, I should be able to just talk to this taxi driver, but bits of Spanish and bits of Finnish keep coming out because it's like there's there's two boxes in my head. There's the English box and there's the foreign box and all the foreign languages go in the foreign box and they all get mixed up and God knows which particular bit is going to come out. But yeah, when you've been in the country for a few days you sort of get used to it and you know the right one tends to come out most of the time. But yeah, that's... I,
1: I, 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 I have similar things where where I started having... That language confusion between Norwegian and German because Norwegian, Dutch and German they are all very similar Um, and and so I can't really speak German anymore until I've been there a day or two and then when I come back I can't speak Norwegian anymore and there was one or two words that coincidentally were similar in French and Norwegian Uh, and and, and for some reason that means that my French is now also completely screwed because I haven't been to to France (laughs) since I moved here so my my French has really evaporated by now, but the the, the weirdest yeah, thing is yeah. that if I've had like a, a bunch of meetings in Norwegian, I, I I had it once or twice. I had a phone conversation or a meeting in Norwegian, and then I walked into a colleague's office, and I start saying something, and I see this scared face, and I'm like oh god, what did I say? Oh, I was speaking Dutch again, wasn't I? It's so quite <laughs> um, quite scary, if 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 this crazy <laughs> Dutch colleague runs into your office. Uh, <laughs> Rattling off in Dutch.
0: <laughs> okay, so what are you working on at the moment?
1: Yeah, so there's this uh, this manuscript um, manuscript Dresden C thirteen. It's it's uh, a manuscript in German that was held in that uh, is held in the in the library in Dresden, uh, and, and it's quite an interesting bit of work. Uh, so I'll just refer to it as C thirteen. So, you know, the, uh, the German fencing master Pasha was active in, um, in that area in the 1650s to 1670s or so.
0: And I have to he, confess I don't. I don't. I'm not familiar. Oh, so uh, who was that?
1: So Pasha was a, a fencing master, German, um, and he published a bunch of books, like a lot of books. But a lot of them were just repeating or slightly edited versions of what he'd published before and then he would expand it one of the more interesting things is that this is one of the few 17th century Ger- uh, German fencing masters who has published about more than just uh, rapier. So let's see if I have his portrait in here. He doesn't look like a very pleasant man, but he wrote a book also on, on wrestling, on unarmed fighting self-defense. Um, he wrote a work on the use of the Jäger stock, the, the two ended stick, uh, oh, wow. a long staff, two meter long staff. Which is only uh, solo <laughs> drills, but still is there. He he wrote a book about playing with the party. Ha, have have um, you
0: have you translated the stick book? Because I want that really badly.
1: Yeah, it's it's on the website. The stick book.
0: Uh, oh my god! How did I miss that?
1: Isn't this one? Uh, so okay. So this is this this has all the different ones he has, and it's it's a more recent translation, so it's it's slightly better.
0: Okay, can you just read out the title so the uh, listeners can can hear it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the title I used was The Martial Arts of Johann Georg Pasha. Uh, and it's available through uh, through Lulu. So in, in it, I've got the uh, the unarmed bits translated. I've got the thrust fencing and the cut fencing. So, he, you know, in, in Germany, they separated the two. And he wrote about both of them. And then we've got the Jägerste- uh, Jägerstock, so the, the staff, uh, the hunting staff. And then we've got the uh, partisan, which is... Um, Sort of in his case, it's a it's a spear with two side prongs that in Italian would be called something different,
0: like a ronca maybe.
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, so the the jägerstock and the partisan, they are just solo drills, uh, and the other stuff is actual um, lessons. Well, with, uh,
0: I absolutely fire. love solo drills. I love solo drills. So okay, I'm going to buy that book. I'm going to do those stick drills, and by the time this episode goes out i will have videos of my early interpretations of those solo stick drills up somewhere if people can see it right okay i am using this podcast to keep me honest <laughs> we've got about probably eight weeks before it goes live this is the 22nd of february i think so it'll be sort of going out sometime in may i think right okay i, so, I will yeah, put so links to those own, videos in the show notes so that's your You've inspired one your me, sir. and
1: um, <laughs> Uh, okay. and and um, and he wrote a bunch of uh books and his his books are you know we talked about bruches having a nice balance between some theory and then lessons but he he never really bothered with with a lot of theory he just gave lessons upon lessons upon lessons and um, uh, um uh, david Koblenz and kevin murakoshi they've been going through all his lessons because they're both the thrust and the cut are divided into eight sections and they've been you know, doing one section at a time, and I think they've done all of them now. Uh, I made videos of them in the last few years that they put online. So that's um, that's very cool. That's, that's pretty nice. It's always really the best thing when you when you make a translation and then somebody actually works from it. It actually right.
0: gets. That is the best used. thing. It's like Cause you feel, you feel like all for. of that work. Yeah, it's like all that work and pain and sweat is actually worth something. Yeah, you yes. see it come alive. It's, it's great. It's, so,
1: yeah, so he wrote a bunch of books uh, on fencing. And then we have this manuscript, C-13, which has an introduction that's signed uh, by Johan Joach Pasha. Uh, and in this introduction, he says, oh, this here are the, the lessons of uh, Salvatore, which are really good. And I got them from uh, a friend.
0: Yeah, I know the book you mean. It's the Vienna. No, no, no. This is better. <laughs> I think it's better. This is better. How, how, okay, so... Just, sorry, just, I'm, I'm, a couple of years ago, about 2019, um, this manuscript was discovered which has the lessons of Salvatore and is and, and it it's called, we're, we're calling it like the Vienna manuscript or something. Yeah, you know, this one, I have it here. Oh, you have it there. Yeah, that's the one. That's the Vienna Anonymous. So so the C-13 is not the Vienna Anonymous. Okay, now it's the Dresden. It's the Dresden C-13. This this is the C-13. So if you look. Okay. Oh, my God. One is twice the thickness. It's a little bit thicker. It's also got some
1: images and and some extra stuff in there, of course. So uh, the the, the work has this introduction by Pasha. uh, I think it was uh, maybe a dedication. And that says, like, I got these lessons of Salvatore. I got them from a friend. They're really good. But they were missing the parries and uh, one or two other things, so I've added these things to make this a complete work. So, you know, a bit, wow. bit of arrogance there, saying that Salvatore's Solv- yeah, like... lessons weren't enough. Um, and, and the better thing is there's also a manuscript in the British Library, 17533, if I remember correctly. And this manuscript presents two versions of the same text, but... There are clear differences, exactly where Pasha says, "I added the Perries, uh, and then in one, of the sto- in one of the chapters, he changed the title of the chapter this, this and this to this, 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 and Paris, and he added, indeed a bunch of lessons with, with the Perries uh, and some other stuff.. Wow. So we've got these two versions of a text of three, because there's two in one, seven, five, three, three, with some differences, but also these very specific differences that, that Pasha said he, he was making changes. Um, and the other interesting thing is the text. Both both the 17533 and um, and uh, the C13 they refer to um, HAV, which is never written out. Um, okay. And in one of the titles, they they refer to a uh, signor Moman So we we haven't Jan, Jan chef and I we worked on this together. We've never been able to find out who this signor signor is. Must have been the best theory I have is that it's a miswriting of Signor Hermann, which was a student of Fabris. um And then the other thing is like, who is this HAV that it refers to from time to time? So interestingly, Pasha had a connection to another fencing master you may know by name, which is uh, Hinich or Heinich. Yep, and Heinich Hinich, yeah, Heinich. He published a German translation of Fabris in yeah. the late 17th century. And in this translation of Fabris, in the introduction to it, he, he amongst other things, mentions that um, mentions written works by Fabris and by a student of Fabris uh, who was his fencing master. And that was Heinrich von Zumfelder or something like that. So uh, it's possible that this manuscript before that, that Pasha edited was written by Heinrich von Zumfelde, H A W Heinrich von And then um, somehow a copy made his hands to to fab, it made it made it into um, Pasha's hands and he said, Oh this is really cool, but you know I, I can make it better. And then he changed it a bit more and um, unfortunately it was never properly wow. published. So it's just the, the manuscript. It also refers to images, which the manuscript didn't have, but the version in the, in the British library did have images that seem to line up quite, quite well with the, uh, the references here,
0: so. Wow. Okay, so so what are you doing with all this material?
1: Well, like I said, right now, this is my, my main book to work from. So, um, again, this is uh, a dose of theory. Uh, this is, and it's, it's much more, a uh, much, much thicker theory session, section. Um, and then it has hundreds of lessons. Obviously, my life is too short to go through hundreds of lessons, but we can take the main ones. Well, and you have a job,
0: like, and a family, you know, your, your boss will probably like to see you at work occasionally, and I'm sure your children would miss you if you spent 24 hours a day being fencing.
1: Yes, unfortunately, that's still the case. <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay. trying to, 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 to get better through this book, um, fence a bit differently.
0: Okay, so is it very different?
1: Well, when I, when I started out, Bruchius, in, in his introduction, he mentions two other authors who wrote books, and that's Fabrice and Thibault. So okay. when I started out, I took that as a oh, well, Bruchius knew... Fabrice. So there must be a connection there. And then um, as I started studying these things a bit more, you find that Fabrice had this this big impact, this big lineage in Germany, where people were taught by, by students of his or students of students, etc. Mm-hmm. And 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 I tried to to link it all up. And I have a presentation on that, and I did a lecture at a big American event, I think Longpoint, and that was taped, and it's online on YouTube somewhere, so i uh, probably look up. Um,
0: yeah, if you look and it up and send the link, I'll put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah, please remind me to do that. Uh, sure. So there's quite quite a few tensing um, masters we can link directly to Fabrice in that way. But then there's also a bunch that, that you know, initially I, I wanted to be linked like Brugius, like Jean Daniel Lange, but they never really found any proof as we do for some of the others. It's a pity that people didn't have the habit of saying this was my fencing master like uh, like we see in Asian <laughs> martial arts, much more. Sure. Um, so whether that connection is is there as strongly as I initially thought between Brugius and Fabrice, I don't know, but clear is that a lot of the German fencing from Koppe onwards is simply very tightly based on, on Italian fencing. Um, they, they use those guard names. They stop using the German guard names. Uh, and, and they start fencing in a, in a fairly similar way. I kind of lost track right. of where I was going here now.
0: No, that's okay. Just, so, yeah, it reminds so, me, there's, so, so, yeah, there's, there's a Swedish so uh, manual uh, by a chap called Porath, P-O-R-A-T-H. Yeah. Um, whose brother was fencing master at Helsinki University in the I think early 18th century. So I mean, Fabrice's influence like spread in all directions. It was going north as well as as well as you know, yeah.
1: yeah. it's a good thing you bring it up because that reminds me that um, oh, there's this, um, this Norwegian guy all the way up in North Sweden. Uh, I can't recall his name right now. He told me at some point he was translating Pordoff or trying to, and uh, and he sent me a bit. And what he sent me seems to be the same text as the C13 or 17533.
0: Oh, right. Look. Okay. So Borov no, may have translated,
1: me. he may have translated that work, that ha- he may have had a copy of that manuscript and translated it into Swedish, at least to some degree, uh, based on the, the small part that I compared so
0: yeah it's funny because back then that was normal practice that wasn't considered like plagiarism particularly that was like you take this book and you translate it into your own language so that your your friends can read it and you take credit for it because you've done all the work of translating it and it's it wasn't i i don't i don't think i mean these days we would just howl plagiarism at them but i think back then these things were more normal uh i'm
1: not entirely sure of that but at least you would be a lot less likely to get caught Without the
0: internet, <laughs> course, well, that is true.
1: Then we have an interesting work here, which is Cooper, uh, uh, and 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 he was not a fencing master, but he was a fencing enthusiast, uh, and and okay, he was can like. You, the, can you uh, just? Re-
0: Hang on a sec. okay. I, sh- I should let you know a couple of things. Firstly, the level of uh, resolution from your camera over the internet isn't really good enough for me to read that. But also, We're the poor people video. listening along, they can't see it, <laughs> so could you just read so, us the title?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so Joachim Kuppe, he wrote a neue Discours der Rittermäßigen und weitberühmten Kunst des uh, which I translated as New Discourse on the Art of Fencing. Um, and he was not a fencing master, but a fencing enthusiast. Um, and a big, big, big fan of Fabrice. So at some point in his book, you know, he's dropping name-dropping, like, oh, you know, uh, I met Fabrice in Paris in person, you know. Oh <laughs> wow. Of stuff. Okay. <laughs> but he's also very explicitly pointing out that his book while based on Fabrice is not a copy of Fabrice uh, and he really wants okay. us to, and, and, and we can take Fabrice's book he says and compare and we'll see it's not the same because he wants us to be sure, you know, he wants to make sure that we don't think of him as, as having plagiarized Fabrice's work so okay. plagiarism, at, at least for some of them and, and he was an academic I think Kupin, uh, was, a, was a concern for some people Funnily, Bruchius seems to have plagiarized at least part of Kuppers' introduction later. But,
0: no, that's... <laughs> that's
1: only something I realized Fantastic. later again.
0: Yeah, of course. Okay, so are you, are you translating anything at the moment? Um, it's,
1: it's, it's taken a bit of a, a back burner with a second kid. Um, ah, and okay. then um, COVID... And having moved farther away from work, uh, which means more travel Dude, time.
0: Uh, seriously, tra- nobody can reasonably scold you for being slack on the translation front, right? You have this gigantic list of published translations. So I think I think you're okay. You don't need to worry about justifying the fact that you're taking a bit of a break.
1: Okay. But yeah, I am currently working on, on, on a translation that I started long ago and that, that's stalled for a while. Um, and I came back to it mm, fresh. Uh, and I'm currently in the stage that um, Tobias Zimmermann is reviewing it for me, for me and Jan. And then um, we've been in contact with Keith Farrell for, for getting it published. Okay. So that will probably be where we go. Still some issues to solve with the images because it's um it's a book. It's it's Weissner. He wrote a manuscript in the early 1730s, which you, you may or may not have seen. It's, it's got really pretty full-color illustrations of um, people in, in yellow and gold, gold and you know, yellow and yellow red um, court uniforms. Wow. And okay, then, yeah, um, I've seen the pictures
0: now. You say I didn't recognize the name. Yeah.
1: yeah. And then, so he wrote that in the 1730s and then in six, 1764, he finally published the work uh, with one plate and a note at the end saying oh please buy this book now and and give us more money so we can get the rest of the plates done and then me and the publisher and uh, one court guy will ensure you get a book with all the plates and then 1765 a third version was published with a larger number of plates not the number and size that he promised so it was a bit of crowdfunding a bit of crowdfunding there um that's so I, I done a translation at first i tried to make one translation in which you could see all three versions of the text using color to indicate difference <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's because you hate yourself right you thought you know, yeah yeah you yeah, might as yeah, well that's just that's stick a fork in I, your head
1: because <laughs> you know I, I figured like okay if i if i use black text for where they're all the same and then I'll use uh, red, yellow and blue for each of the individual ones and then where two of them agree you can then get, no, if, if red and yellow agree you can make it orange and if yellow and blue
0: agree <laughs> I love your ambition but oh my god, no Yeah, that didn't work <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do it for a paragraph, a single paragraph, just to sort of so people can see the relationship with the text. But for a whole book, no way.
1: No, <laughs> no. What I ended up doing now is I, I ended up pulling this 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 one translation into three again. I put it in tables next to each other um, with the differences indicated in in a color. Um, and and Tobias is now checking the 765 and from there on we we go back checking the other two. But we still wow. need
0: to to a lot of somehow.
1: Get permission to, to publish the the plates with it, and they're at the I think it's the Staatsbibliothek in in Bay- the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek, in mentioned, and they they tend to be a bit expensive. Ah, so you I think, know. So, so I think we have yeah. the permission for the the full color illustrations in the manuscripts because they are in a different library and they are um, not so expensive. But the uh, the seventy sixty five plates, if we want to include, them, then we we may be maybe in trouble
0: honestly, I, I these these museums and libraries and stuff they often behave this way, it drives me absolutely nuts. But um is a perfect candidate for like a Kickstarter or some sort of crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, if if the if the university or well, the library wants this chunk of money for these rights, you know how much money you need to raise. And the selling point is really clear and with the right sort of push behind it, it should be doable. True, on simple. the
1: other hand, my experience is that the, the 1700s books, the 18th century books, is, the, the, the audience for that is, is rather small.
0: Yeah, the trick is, is yeah, it's, it's, it's a marketing problem because people, most people aren't doing early 1700s German rapier stuff right so i guess to make it work we would need to find some way of getting in getting interest from people who are interested in the art itself for its own thing and also sort of expanding the minds of the existing rapier community to understand that this stuff is actually super useful
1: it's also interesting because it's um if you take the 1731 date, it's actually the earliest written text in the Chrysler lineage that we know of.
0: So, there's also that. Right. You, you know the
1: please, lineage, or
0: I, I know of it. I'm not an expert. But I'm, and I'm guessing that most of the people listening have never even heard of it. So why don't you tell us exactly what it is? So Chrysler, uh, Johann Willem, I think was the first Chrysler, was a
1: fencing master in Germany. And, and he was a, a mm-hmm. student of, again, Fabrius. Uh, And they they founded a lineage. They managed to get exclusive teaching rights in Jena for for a bunch of decades. And they ran one and then two schools in Jena where they taught their style of fencing. And some of these, uh, you know, like it went from father to son. And if there were two sons, then one of them would go to a different city and start teaching there. And they built a a very strong reputation and, and a strong lineage that was active into the 1800s late 1800s i think and and, and was still being written about uh, in in the middle of the 20th century, century. um and so that's some, some the Angelo's of germany um,
0: right?
1: in a way yeah in a way that a really big reputation uh and, and and some exclusive teaching rights that they used well so there's a, a nice that's story i think about the second or third chrysler that at some point, um, um, August the Strong, who was uh, the elector of Saxony and the king of Poland, he, he'd heard of this, uh, this lineage and these, these Chrysler fencing masters. And he came to the school but, uh, in disguise and then the, the fencing master was out. And he, you know, he, he, he fenced with some students and um, I think he, he beat them and he humiliated them a bit. So Chrysler had to get his, his revenge. And this story is told in a few sources and in different ways, but he had to get his revenge. So he uh, disguised himself as a poor schoolmaster or something and went to, um, to the court of August the Strong. And there he started um, challenging people, fencing people. And, and the Chryslers have this um, signature technique which is called the ligade in, in, well, in German, but it's not a German word. Um, where you use a change from quad into uh, into second or, or tet to mm-hmm. kind of try to strike the blade out of your opponent's hand. Okay. Um, Alex Kiemeyer in Germany, uh, you're sure, I'm sure you know Alex Kiemeyer. He, he can teach you that really well. Sure. Um, so you can use that as a parry or just as a as an engagement. Um, so he he used that signature technique on each and every. Um, person wanted to fence him and pretty soon Olaf uh, sorry August heard that there was some some old guy humili- humiliating people at the court so he had to come out and fence and then Chrysler did the same thing to him once or, um, <laughs> or um, so August uh, got, got really angry and said well either you are the devil or you are that Chrysler from Jena at which point he <laughs> yes I am Chrysler from
0: Vienna. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. So that's a a really
1: funny story, but it's it's also interesting because I found a similar story about Johann Andreas Schmidt, um, who was a fencing master a bit earlier in the seventeenth century. Um, As far as I know, I've never been able to find a strong connection to to, um, between Schmidt and, and Chrysler, but there's a story. Written sometime after his death, that he would have beaten one or two fencing masters with that technique to get his post as fencing master at some court. So it's 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 oh. it's a story that's usually told about Kreuzler but you can also find it about Schmidt at least, and, and maybe some other um, people. So it's, it's, I don't I'm not sure if that speaks for the veracity or not of that story, but.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm, I am surprised that in a room full of courtiers who clearly know how to fence, the same trick would work twice. Or certainly not three times. Because you'd, yep. you'd think they'd be watching and going, oh, he did that thing. Oh, he did that thing again. Okay, right, I see what he's doing. And then, you know, because you know, every technique has a counter, you know, a disengage at that point or just don't allow that particular engagement in... Or whatever, and the technique goes away. Um, yep. So I'm, 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 su- I'm surprised that it works, but I mean, I guess these things do. And that's pretty much how Johan Harmenberg won the Olympic gold medal in, in Epe in 1980. You know, he had basically one technique which he was just really, really, really good at, um, which I mean I he says this himself I'm not, I'm not making this up he says it himself in his book FA2.0 where uh, basically he needs you to be to attack over his into his ceased line and he would just pick you up and cease and hit you and that was the one thing he could do right he had one world class technique and his whole game plan was getting you to give him that point over his arm so he could pick it up and cease and do what he wanted to do so yeah maybe yeah.
1: I mean this um, I, I, this Ligata I think it works best against a, a thrust on the inside line a standard thrust which is probably not for good fancy muscle and not that hard to, to induce in, um, in in another sure. fencer.
0: yeah huh you're giving me all sorts of ideas right now. <laughs> but I've already promised I'll do the stick stuff so I'm not going to do the rapier stuff just yet <laughs> excellent okay um now, I have, I have a few questions that I ask most of my guests. And um, I mean, clearly, you've acted on a lot of ideas, but what is the best idea you haven't acted on?
1: Yeah, I've been staring at that question. Uh, you know, one of the things with ADHD is not being able to come up with examples when asked. And I, 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 I'm, I'm drawing <laughs> okay. a complete blank on this one.
0: All oh, um, right, well, fine. I mean, it's, it's not like you haven't acted on plenty of ideas. So, you know. <laughs>
1: there, may, there may have been some professional things where I could have made a lot more money if I'd done things differently or so, but
0: maybe not. Yeah, you should have bought those Apple shares when you had the chance. Yeah. You know. But the thing is, if I had bought those Apple shares, right, Apple would have gone bankrupt and would all be using Microsoft phones. So, honestly... Not, not this, you know, there's no way to know. But um, it's one quite common answer I get for that question is I act on all my good ideas. So, so, so you could just go with that one if you like.
1: (laughs) I act on a lot of my ideas and, and some of them turn out to be good.
0: And the other ones just remain in the darkness and never spoken of again.
1: (laughs) The other ones are learning
0: experiences. (laughs) Exactly. Excellent. Okay. So, all right, so my my last question, Um, somebody gives you a million euros to spend improving historical martial arts or related fields worldwide. How would you spend the money?
1: you know i'm re- I would be really tempted to to spend it to set myself up where I can um, spend more time improving historical martial arts for myself you know, like pay off the mortgage get some location and, um, and 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 somehow set some money aside that that gives me support so I can and spend more of my my time working on these things but that's probably not the best way to achieve the goal of, of improving historical martial arts on a, on a grander scale. So a better way would be to, um, to put it in a, in a, in a fund. Let's see if we have a million euros, you get about 5%, 10% interest if you invested wisely. So we'd have, um, yeah. 50,000 euros a year to spend. So we could maybe give, um, uh, a scholarship to somebody and uh, and have an event where we bring some good researchers together um, and 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 focus on that and I would have I would prefer uh, an event with with deep high level classes over a competitive oriented event so you know, combine that with some um, more academic lectures and set it up as a as a fund
0: okay so so we would set up a fund and use the money to finance a high level academic and practical event and possibly also like scholarships for researchers that sort of thing yeah yeah I, think I, mean, would be, I get the temptation of you know, just just pay off Rainier's mortgage so he can like work full-time on historical markets. I, that would be not a bad way to spend it, but I think would get more sort of public backing for a, <laughs> a less focused use <laughs> of the money. Okay, so what would your event yeah, look like? You know, actually,
1: uh, before the corona thing hit, I'd been uh, considering... I, I, I organized the, the International Rapier Seminar um, mm-hmm. a bunch of years ago, the first one. Uh, and that was really a lot of fun. We had it in Delft. We, we rented the hall. We got some top-level Rapier instructors. And we asked each of them to do a beginner and an experienced class because there were not enough Rapier people in the Netherlands to run an experienced event. But if I could also get people in for like, hey, I've never done Rapier, but I kind of wanna want to try that for an event... Then, then I would have enough people to to support it so that the other people coming in for the high level event um, would be able to have their workshops so I asked each instructor teach teach one class at a beginner level where you assume the people have you know basically held a rapier a couple hours ago for the first time and and one class at a level where you assume people have a couple of years experience so that was a really fun event um, I was th- recently thinking like I live here close to Oslo and you can take a a ferry from Oslo to, to Copenhagen. And in Copenhagen you have these three beautiful velvet manuscripts, velvet covered manuscripts with um, a text written by this fencing master that you may have heard of, uh, Salvatore Fabrice. So I've been actually, I actually went as far as to contact the ferry company to see if it's at all, at all doable to, to organize an event on the ferry where we have lectures and workshops on the ferry from oslo to kiel uh, to oslo to copenhagen and then there we'd have a day trip visiting the library and seeing that manuscript and, and some uh, and some museums uh, and so and then yeah. go back on the ferry uh, with more uh, lectures and workshops the next the next night the next
0: oh night. wow what did they say
1: uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but it wasn't a direct no. So at
0: least there's that,
1: <laughs> and then and then oh, okay. and some other stuff, and it, it kind of disappeared off the yeah. radar.
0: But but, one of but those ferries, those ferries really exist to pour alcohol into passengers. I mean that's that's where they make their money. And you can point out to them that the historical martial arts community is the community that, in a four star hotel in Lansing, Michigan, literally drank the bar dry. I was there. I helped. We drank. They, they literally ran out of beer. And we had warned them that this might happen. And they had laid in extra stock. And <laughs> that's not enough. So, so you could take that anecdote to that ferry company and just point out that with a bunch of historical martial artists on board. Yeah, the their the liquor sales will do just fine.
1: But, you know, if, if we bring it a little bit more down to earth, I would say um, like a, a three-day, two-day, two, day, two three-day event. Um, mm-hmm. Well-known research and instructors in, in well, as I'm organizing it, we're going to do 17th century martial arts um, or, or about. And then, um, you know, for a first one, you can be relatively open. So get some lectures on on. Invite lectures, ask them what they want to lecture on, uh, and, and the same for classes. And um, yeah, have some nice dinners and, and stuff.
0: Um, so yeah, this is sounding awful, an awful lot like the best idea you haven't acted on, actually.
1: Oh, I, I have acted <laughs> <'cause>, <laughs> on it. I've organized the first international rapier I mean. Yeah, no, 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 no but...
0: But yeah, absolutely. But but the um but like the one on the ferry and taking it to the next level and you know it's like and to be fair, it was COVID that stopped you from from acting on it really. Okay.
1: Well, well, COVID and uh, uh, expectations so. at the the library may be difficult, and you know a lot of a lot of steps. But yeah, sure. maybe maybe that should be the the idea. I haven't acted on yet.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I I have never seen those manuscripts.
1: I was really really lucky uh, at the last international rapier seminar a uh, few people got to go and and see one of those manuscripts and, and leave through it
0: oh wow that's <laughs> yeah oh well yeah do you know um i'm more of a Capoferro man than a rapier man uh, than a fabris man um and i th- i know that roberto gotti has a manuscript copy of capo with yes. the plates. I don't know whether that's a presentation done by a professional calligrapher or whether it's actually Capifera's manuscript itself. What do you yeah. think
1: i I remember having seen a page or two on on Facebook. I don't remember having looked well enough at the at the handwriting to if it's if it's clearly very beautiful, that may be an indication that it's a professional stripe if it's clearly very poor handwriting, and maybe an indication that it's um, some fencing master scribbling his notes. I, I don't, um, I don't remember. So I, sorry, I, I don't. All
0: right, because actually, there, there's another, there's another little mystery around Capo Ferro, um, where I very recently got my own copy. Of the 1610, right? And, and yes, I'm showing this up to the camera and the listeners can't see it, but there's, there's pictures of it online, if I have you. And I'll stick pictures in the show notes, right? And it's 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 clearly the 1610 edition and it's in a contemporary binding and it's in fairly good nick for a book that's 412 years old. But the point is, and you may have some insight into this because, you know, you know about these things. All right. On the final page,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the original printed um, final page with the "ego frater Gregorius Lombardelius, right. Basically, the um, the permission from the Inquisition to publish the book. You know, he's found nothing heretical in it, right? And the the date and the the uh, publisher's colophon and all that sort of stuff, right? The original is there, but pasted over the top is one which has a date 1609, so M-D-C-I-X at the bottom. I'm not sure you can see it. I can send you a picture. Mm-hmm. Right? And the, instead of being a professor, he is a doctor. Mr. Frater Gregorius Lombardelius is a doctor, not a professor, so clearly he's been promoted between 1609 and 1610. Right? But the question is, Do you have any idea why there would be a 1609 colophon page and why it would be pasted over the 1610 back page? Any ideas?
1: I'm just a poor geologist, mate.
0: (laughs) That is so demonstrably not true. (laughs) You spent the last hour and a bit basically... like demonstrating your reasonable doubt that you are a world expert in 17th century rapier sources so no <laughs> you can't hide behind geology
1: i know a little bit about the contents because that's stuff you can read and see i don't know um, i don't know that much about the processes that go into printing writing publishing books okay um, so uh, yeah can't help you very much
0: there well not to worry I mean hopefully there will be a, a paleographer or something uh, specializing in the early 17th century Italian books listening to this episode who will send me a friendly email saying well actually Guy what you'll find is doik and the mystery will be solved but yeah it just strikes me as just completely bizarre
1: yeah, well, one person you could ask is uh, Jacopo Jacoponi who helped me with the Gorio translation um, ok you know, well, um I think he's in that, that big Italian group that you used to play with as well.
0: Um I used to play with
1: Well there's there's this big Italian school. These these, these I think they used to wear these brown leather aprons over their fencing white fencing jackets.
0: Oh um, pizzas Pisas, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Many, many, many years ago. Yes, the founder yes. and I had a bit of a falling out. Oh. Eighteen years ago, something like that, <laughs> and I haven't seen much of them since. Oh, um, okay. But um, okay, okay. I'll, I will, but I can, I can certainly look him up, and you know, um. And,
1: cool. and those, I, so Jacopo, yeah. Jacopo, I
0: will, I will, I'll, I'll have, I'll have a look and ask him and see what he says. Thank you. And otherwise, a, a yeah, maybe tip.
1: maybe Roberto Gotti. I don't know how much he knows. I know. I know he collects a lot, but I don't know if he if he would also be able to ask him a question like that. Or um, the guy in Rome. Mm.
0: There are many guys sure in Rome. I've hung yeah. out with quite a few of them. Um.
1: The, the, the really tall one who does running tournaments. Uh he he runs Aima or so. Uh, I'm horrible. Oh right, right, right.
0: Yes, yes. I honestly, I'm crap at names too, and it's been a few years since I was in Italy. So I will, but I, I'm pretty sure I know the man you mean. I will, I will begin. In fact, do you know? I don't think I've actually had an Italian on the podcast yet. Mm. That's a shocking laugh. Given it's, that I am an Italian yeah. specialist, that's weird, isn't it? Right, okay. Right, you, you've, you've inspired me again, really. I need to get Italians onto the show. So so what Excellent.
1: keeps you going on Capoferro? Because you've been going on Capoferro for twenty years
0: now? Um, well I'm not just Capoferro. I mean I, I'm also a Fiore man and a Vadi man and a Pon thirty three man and a Angelo, primarily Angelo also but a bit of Girard small sword man and yeah. various other no things. Care.
1: No, um, okay, but okay, within okay, radio, yeah, yeah.
0: You, you're mainly going on Copa Ferro
1: for, for
0: 15, yeah. 20
1: years?
0: Yes, and that's primarily because I am not fundamentally really a researcher, right? I am primarily a martial arts instructor. And the reason I do the research is so that I have useful stuff to teach, right? And what I'm looking for, in any given weapon style, is a sufficiently complete, historically authentic style that, 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 that allows me to have a complete curriculum to teach my students. Right? And Caper provides that. And the reason it's Caper rather than Fabris is really simple. Right? In 2003, I was at Benicia in California at this event where I was invited to teach a longsword class. Um, and a couple of things happened. One, I went to a Caperferro class given by Sean Hayes, which just made a load of sense. And William Wilson, because back then my Italian was pretty crap. William Wilson and Jarek Schwanger brought out a free translation of Capaferró, So I thought, ah, okay, well, I'll dig into Caperferro. Sean's class gave me the kind of nudge. And then I had access to these excellent free resources and so I just sort of dived in, and three years later, out came my book, The Zulus Companion, and I had a pretty solid interpretation of how to do Capoferro's style, which is not that different to Giganti, and fundamentally not that different to Fabris. It's just the guard positions look different, right? There are some mechanical differences, but Fabris himself says you don't have to pay too much attention to the pictures, right? right. So, so. It's, it's not that I don't have a curiosity about the rest of the century and the other masters and what have you. It's that what I'm, what I'm looking for in the books that I'm researching is a fencing system that is sufficient to meet my students' needs. Right? And Capferro did that. And, you know, I've done classes on Giganti and Fabris... Um, as in taught classes on these things, and I've looked at a bunch of other sources too. I actually have a couple of plates from Bondi de Mezzo hanging up in the next room, which I found. <laughs> and and you know, I've got the rest. I don't have the original of the rest of the book, but, you know, one has, like, translations and... Actually, hang on, isn't that how we first met? You you were producing a translation. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we first all interacted when you were... Tr- producing a translation of the Spala Maestra and and I had the the colour plates for you to use for the cover right yes. there we go yes yeah Indeed. so so but I have to be there's only so much time and rapier isn't my favourite system well, I like That's it because I love it a it's though. very important <laughs> no, no, that's not that's not fair. It's that um, I I like I like systems that feel adaptable, right? And rapier, as it's presented in the seventeenth century sources, tends to be really specific, right? And yes, it can be adapted to other things, and the principles are great, and, and, okay, the logo of my school has crossed behind the shield a longsword and a rapier, because I think they're both, like, fundamentally important, kind of, foundational weapons for the study of historical martial arts. Right? They're, they are equally important in that regard. And Honestly, I wish a lot more longsword people would do rapier, because it would improve their longsword dramatically, because they have actually learned things like, you know, blade control, and point control, and how you, know, binds and wines and disengages and things that actually work. Um, what and some of the local people, people listening, <laughs> right? They would um, they would
1: learn what the centre line is and why it's important.
0: Right. <laughs> yes. Let's not be too mean to the the local people there because you know they they, they do try. <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah. So, you know. My interest is broad, you know like from one thirty three and if there were earlier sources, I'd be interested in those two, all the way up to basically the end of small sword, early nineteenth century stuff um i mean for for simplicity's sake, I say thirteen hundred to eighteen hundred because stuff after 1800 it gets quite artificial and, and sort of sport fencing and classical fencing and it's, it's, it's basically the sword is no longer a sidearm and before 1300 we don't have any sources so there's that 500 year period so you know spending you know significant amounts of time coming up with like a complete and thorough working on Fabris for instance or okay I should also point out, I only work with sources at a sort of professional level where I can read the original at least to some degree. Right? And I did four years of Latin at school, so no, I could not possibly translate 133, but I can at least have an idea, I can, I can have an informed opinion about um, Professor Forgang's translation. I'm entirely mm-hmm. dependent on it, and that's the only system I teach where I'm dependent on the translation.
1: Uh, you, uh, you, can take the, you can take a translation and original text and at least see what the translator did um, and decide on whether you agree with right. it or
0: not. Right. But yeah, exactly. Whereas, whereas with German, um, I'm, I'm, I, have, I have no German or Germanic languages at all. No. Um, and and I could, I could spend some time learning some German, and it would not be a bad way to spend my time. Um, but, you know, there's so much stuff that I can read that spending the time to get good enough at German that I can have an informed opinion about, for instance, your translations of German or Dutch, resources, um, sources, it's, it's not necessarily the best use of my time.
1: No: No, I was also asking because I, I read like I said, when I started on Rapier, I read everything I could get, so I, I read uh, Tom Leone's translation of Fabrius, of, of course, I read his translation of um, Giganti, and I read three different translations of Capo Ferro, and it just it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. It's, um, it's the source
0: I felt the least for. Yeah, I, I get it. And, and honestly, Kafka Ferro is a shockingly bad writer, right? Well, and the problem, the reason that we have these three different translations is because it's it's really hard. I mean, in, in many I mean, some of it's perfectly straightforward, but it's it's not really well written. I would say that, with all due respect to the maestro, it is not a particularly well written book. Um, so. But, you know, somebody might tell you your baby is ugly, and they might even be right, but you'll never see it. And, you know, I just love Capifera. I just do. And, you know, of all, I have, I have several, like, original fencing books, which I have collected over the years. And I have a Fabris, right? And it's, it's beautiful and gorgeous, and I love it. Um, but this is the one that I wanted, really in my heart of hearts like Kappa Feral, is the one that they will they won't bury me with it because that would be wrong right because it yeah. would be a waste of a book but but, but you know I can, I can see that at some point in the next I don't know 40 years or so I might end up selling the other ones and just so, to get they, other ones yeah
1: they, they won't but bury you with it but at Feral's your funeral right. instead of a photo of you there will be a photo there will be the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's what you're yeah
0: well but, but honestly, that's only because the Getty the Getty Library uh, Getty Museum won't sell me the, the, the Fiore, and if they if they were going to sell me the Fiore, you know I don't have enough kidneys to sell to buy it. <laughs> I need a, yeah. at the going rate on on the black market, it'd probably be about twenty kidneys, and that's at least, and that's that's just I've only got two. <laughs> I, 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 so. To continue on with something you said,
1: I I, I do I. I see some difference between my understanding of Fabris and, and, uh, and the stuff in his lineage versus other people's understanding of Capoferro and Giganti, because you said they're all kind sure. of the same. I think there are some, some um, significant differences, actually.
0: Uh, particularly it depends on your point of view, right? I mean, there are obviously differences, but at the end of the day, a disengaged is a disengaged. And a string ring is a string ring, and a parry is a parry, and you stick the forte in the way of their devilay, and you stab them, pretty
1: much. Yeah, but yes. I think um, Fabrice seems to, to prefer a shorter, quicker lunge, uh, whereas at least the impression I get from from hearing other people about Capo Ferro Gigante is that they still think you should lunge at the... Uh, about long measure and 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 work to 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 lunch longer and i have the impression that fabris prefers a short lunch or maybe even if he can get away with not making a lunge, then that's even better for example
0: well okay cap Capifera would agree with him right capo single tempo is a strike of the fixed foot where neither foot moves you're just throwing your weight from your back foot to your front foot and that's why he has such a wide guard right so that you know, you're, you're there in guard and your head is back and your body is back, but your front foot is no. really far forward. So you can throw your body all the way forward onto that thing without having to move your foot off the ground. And if you look at the way Capoferro's lunge actually works, he is moving his front foot its own length. Right? That's it. That is all. No. Right? It so is as quick a- as it can reasonably be.
1: So then you get a distance of how much between, um, between the feet at lunge?
0: Um, okay, well, I would work the other way. I would say you start with the length of your lunge and you recover your front foot back its own length. So your, your toe is, is where the back of your heel was. Okay, And the thing is, most people are not flexible enough to have their feet that far apart in the guard position. And so most people have a much shorter guard position, but they go to that full length of the lunge, and so they have something much closer to a modern sport fencing lunge. That is not what Capo Ferro tells us to do. Right? So Capo lunge, I think, right, and I've, I've measured this, right? if I lie on the floor, um, and uh, we take a tape measure from the outside of my left foot to the tip of my sword, my, my arms extended above my head, so we get the absolute maximum reach between the outside edge of my back foot and the tip of my sword, and we put that on, put the end of the tape measure on the thrusting target on the wall and take that same distance back and make a line on the floor. I can put my back foot on that line and I can hit the target with capiferous lunge. It is the absolute maximum reach you can possibly have with the bones that you've got and the sword that you've got. But he does that with the front foot moving literally its own length which is on me hang on I have a tape measure right here I don't actually know how long my feet are I should my foot is 28 centimetres long so my foot is moving 28 centimetres at least well okay if I do it correctly and perfectly according to Capo my foot is moving 28 centimetres yep okay so yes the lunge is long in that it covers the maximum distance between your back foot and the point of your sword But in terms of emotion, it should be very small.
1: That's cool. That's cool.
0: I was about to say, Fabris moves his foot a lot further because he has his feet together at the beginning and then he's going into a short lunge. But, and here's this is one of the things I picked up from
1: the C-13, but I think it's also actually in Fabris himself, uh, his own book. One thing he describes is um, a way to attack to approach an attack from long measure if you're not being given a tempo and one thing you can do then is, yeah. is once you're at the measure where you could hit with a lunge instead of making a lunge which the opponent will react to and hit you in the tempo you just gradually move your front foot forward while keeping your body still and once your foot yeah, is yeah. placed and you creep forward also with your, with your sword a bit once the distance from your sword to them is shorter than their parry distance you just finish that so then you get right. quite similar to what you just showed for Capoferro, um, from the guard coming forwards. Here, here you right. shift your foot forward. So you get like, you move your foot first in the dungeon away. And then once you're there, you just finish that into, that, into a hit.
0: Right. So, so the, way, the way I would describe that from a Capoeira perspective is starting in a short guard position, um, you get your foot out to a proper guard position and then you strike them in the action of a single tempo yep Um, because capoferro is weird he has his 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 lunge he calls it a tempo and a half and then the strike of what he calls the like every other fencing master right the strike of the fixed foot is the lunge because the back foot is fixed right as opposed to the pass where the back foot moves right whereas for capoferro the lunge the strike of the fixed foot is both feet stay still right the front foot isn't moving right and then he's got the um, half tempo where you step back and thrust at your opponent's arm as they come forward, right? So he has those options, and of course you can also strike with the pass and various other things. But the 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 way rapier is often fenced these days, and I'm guilty of this myself because it's a fun way to do it, is much closer to the mechanics of sport fencing where you have a relatively short, short guard and relatively long lunges, and you might even try and do blade actions on the lunge, which you should never do with a rapier because it should be like, too heavy and too long for that to work. Right? Um,
1: yeah, I, I should correct myself. Fabrice actually calls this a way to, to go into narrow measure from long measure. So you, you shift your foot into the narrow measure, and if you've done mm-hmm. still got that line, then you change that into a fixed, double fixed foot lunge. So that's uh, I think that's a really interesting thing. I've been working on that. Um, I was working on that before yeah, the, very cool. the COVID. The COVID hit, and we had to stop. And we <laughs> train and we had to stop, and we train. You know, so everything is, yeah, is sure. all crap now. But it was um, a lot of fun working that. The other interesting thing that I think is not in Fabrice himself, but is in the C thirteen, is, is a whole bunch of stuff about uh, metafoos, the foot so your foot suspended in the air for example he would um, tell you to right. make a feint with your foot in yeah. the air your front foot and then from there continue uh, depending on whether they parry or not and that's that's an interesting balance exercise trying to move your body forwards whilst also lifting that front foot off the ground a little yeah, bit and it's,
0: and it's actually something that i was taught in sport fencing in the 80s huh. right so so you faint and the foot comes off the ground so that you can lunge or not if you want I mean, yeah. it's nobody ever does it these days in sport fencing that I'm aware of. But yeah, I was, I was taught that. And, yeah, we have the same problem with small sword, right? Small sword is not modern foil and small sword is not rapier. Small sword is its own thing. And when it's done the way it's done in the book, it is a knife fight short, fought at very close range, right? It's hideous. It is so fast. It is so dangerous, right? And the lunge is, as Camfera would say, the lunge, we see it again in Angelo, is its own length, right? The, the length of the foot. So, like, the foot moves, in my case, 28 centimetres or so, right? It's not these great, long, accelerating lunges that you see in sport fencing where you can do, like, three disengages and actions on the blade as you go forward in the lunge. It is, you're getting in close, you're getting in close, bah, bam, and then they're dead, or, you're, or you are, or at least they've got a hole in them, hopefully, right? It's yeah. It's... Yeah, no. we we generally as uh, you know, we generally don't do it quite the way it's done in the books because honestly, it's really hard to fence your friends that way and have fun and not kill anyone. So true. So the, the other, other
1: thing that um, that struck me in one of the things you said about Capoeira is that you like a, a system that's flexible that you can change that's in a martial art. I'm not sure if I'm saying exactly what you said.
0: Yeah, I can't not so, really. Oh,
1: oh okay. <laughs> but one, one thing that I, I've been also uh, playing with, and I've sometimes, you know, because you have to argue with people on the internet, I've sometimes throwing in some <laughs> extra power, as in, in footwork is not important, just to, to rile up some feathers. <laughs> but, <laughs> Uh, right. One one impression I have from from studying Fabris is that initially, footwork is important. It's always important, but initially learning to do the footwork exactly as he tells you is important. You have to learn to step the way you're told. You have to learn to lunge the way you're told. You have to learn to step or lunge or, or etc. When you're told, but then, and I think this is. Partly, what the second book gets at is that at some point it basically okay. Now that you know all this, now that you know how to step, when to step, and how to step in a particular way at what time, now you can kind of forget about forget about it because you'll just yeah, just do walk. what you need to do. Just go. Yeah, yeah just he, walk.
0: He says just just walk just walk towards your opponent and when they do this, a bad, and then you stab them. Like, it's great. Yeah. and yeah. Far- Faris's second book is awesome. <laughs>
1: yes. But I think that's that kind of is, is the key of the whole thing. It's like you learn all these things, but eventually you don't have to think, do I need to make a lunge or a passing step now? It's just you're falling on your face and you need to move one of your right. feet to that place so you don't fall on your face. And if all your right. weight is on your right foot, you're going to move your left foot. And if your weight is right. on your left foot, then okay, you move your right foot. I think that's, right. and I think that you know, applies have- to a lot of this stuff.
0: Right, we have in, in um there's the Scansa del Piedrito, where you're stringing on the outside, and the attack comes to the inside, and you step your front foot out of the way, and you yep. stab them. And you have also the Scansa de della Vita, where you take your back foot out of the way, and that takes your whole body with it, and this is a beautiful, big, open thing, and it's lovely. Right, okay. So, at no point to see address when you should do which, right? But the thing is, if you're approaching somebody and you're stepping forward to string of them, your weight, when they do the disengage and that sword comes towards you, your weight is going to be on your front foot or on your back foot, depending on the timing of your opponent's actions. So my, my view is, if your weight's on the back foot, move the front foot and do the scantula on the piedrita. If the weight's on the front foot, move the back foot and do the scantula on the la Vita. And they should be, your internal experience of them should be just get out of the way. Yeah. Right? And it starts whatever, by whatever turning foot's a baby Exactly, and then whatever, whatever foot moves, moves.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I've, I, I've been looking at a lot of stuff that way. Like, okay, I need to hit my opponent with my sword placed there, and because of the way they stand, my body needs to be there. Okay, so if my sword needs to be there, and that means my body needs to be there, then my feet need to be somewhere over there and not falling over. Hey, right. victory. Right.
0: Okay, and you know, I, I sometimes have to persuade my students that they already know footwork and I do that by just getting them to walk up to each other and shake hands Right, and they never fall over they never trip over their own feet they never miss with the hand, they're always in a comfortable measure against their opponent for what, or their partner or whatever for what they're trying to do, which in this case is simply shake hands, and the thing is shaking hands is a common cultural thing for us so they've all done it loads of times before. They understand like about, about sort of social distance and stuff. It's different now, obviously. Um, but you know they, it's, it's not difficult. We, we can do all this stuff. And all of this sort of fancy footwork and what have you is just a way of understanding what you can do when you're constrained into certain kinds of footwork. So if your weight is on this foot, you will have to do this. If your weight is on that foot, you will have to do that but it's, we already know how to move freely. Yeah. But, but yeah, but, uh, you can't really start with that.
1: <laughs> no, no, because you, know, you need to make people aware of, of what they're doing. And once they're aware of what they're doing, then they can handle themselves. But when they're right. unaware of what food they're using, then they're gonna get in trouble.
0: But also the sword complicates things because until, until they're used to the length of the sword, they will be in the wrong place to do the thing they want to do with the sword. So like one exercise I have students do is holding the sword however the hell, uh, you know, we have a wall target for like thrusting at, put your other shoulder on the wall, you're that close, and hit the target however you need to hit the target. right? And then take a bit of a step back and keep doing it step back and keep doing it, step back and keep doing it. And eventually you'll switch your feet around and then you'll be lunging and then you move further back, you'll be passing. But all you're trying to do the whole time is just get the point, boom, into the target. And then with a bit of practice, you want to get the point into the target with the minimum motion of the arm. And then all the rapier stuff just happens by itself.
1: So you, you said that you're further around, you're passing. Is that in capo ferro, passata from
0: long distance, longer than lunge? Um, no, it's just basic mechanics. It's, if I, if I need to go a long distance that way, if my front foot is significantly... I mean, if my two feet are together, it doesn't matter which foot I move forward, really. Okay? But if I'm definitely right foot forward and I have the sword in my right hand, okay, my lunge is anchored by my back foot. Okay? So oh, yeah. the distance of the lunge is determined by the position of the back foot. If I pass, That's the, the, the distance is the forward I can go... Yeah. is determined by the position of the front foot so i because my front foot is significantly further forward than my back foot my pass will always reach further than my lunge. yes oh yeah
1: but it was a, a trick question uh because okay. fabric uh explicitly says that you should use the passata only at close measure and that's um that's the thing i you know when i got started and i read this uh, and i go but the passing step is longer so why would you use it at close measure uh and the reason is that with your passing step, you, you need to make sure you pass the point early in the passing step because otherwise you're going to be vulnerable for a, a counter-attack. Um, so that's that, that why it struck me a bit that you, you said, oh, yeah, if you're too far away to lunge, then you should take a passing step your action. That's that's something feathers would probably not um, condone.
0: Um, I don't know that that's true because the... Uh, Okay, one thing that pretty much nobody is doing, and for good safety reasons, is we're not striking to the depth that we're being told to strike in the books. There should be a solid, like, 40 centimetres of blade sticking out of your opponent's head so that you are well inside their point. While while your sword is stuck in their body, Mm -hmm. you want it to be really difficult for them to get their weapon all the way back to hit you. Right? And so... Everything is done a lot closer. And so, and the, the pass is a really good way of getting deep in almost behind your opponent, right? Mm-hmm. But we can't fence that way without killing people or at least giving them you know, broken ribs and concussions and all sorts of horrible things. So we tend to fence from further away. Right. And the point of the pass. Go ahead.
1: Uh, You said we we fence from further away. So that should also mean that simply some techniques are not going to work uh, the way they they should. So maybe we should just not. Absolutely.
0: So like, I I think a passing step. Just just to clarify, hang on. Just, Just to clarify. If you are not close enough to lunge, Right. Let's say you're, you're both of you standing still. Okay. If you are not close enough to lunge, at that moment when you have the tempo, you don't have time to do a pass. Right. Because mm-hmm. the pass will take because it travels so far, it will take so long. Your opponent yeah, will have all the time good. in the world to write a letter home to their mum saying, "Help! Help! I'm being attacked!" And then parry and repost. Yes. Right. So I'm not suggesting that you. You know, if you if you are far away and you want to attack, you would then use a pass because that's just too long, right? Yeah, that's, but that's let's helpful. let's say let's say we're in close, and you're recovering, and I have the tempo to chase you, but you're moving backwards and my weight's in the wrong place to lunge, then a pass will do the job for me, right? And it will get me deeper, which is a good thing, right? Yeah. And also, you know, some some of Capaferr's techniques demand a pass, like the Scannatura, for example, where you get your left hand in. So you have done something similar to the um, legada, I think you called it. That sort of you're in quarta and you sort of bind it down to sort of seconda. Um, no, yeah, that it, action. It does, so We have we have something a we have something a bit like that in in called the scanatura in Cavafera, and it's it's followed up by so as you basically bound them out to your right hand side. If you're a right hander, you then pass in and grab the weapon. The, the hilt of their weapon with your left hand and you I mean scalatura means butchering so you slaughter them at that point <laughs> right and literally the sword goes in sort of a waist height and it comes out through the shoulder
1: <laughs> there's a yes there's a, one of these German authors Jean Daniel Lange he is he's, I think he's the one who's fondest of grappling with the rapier and a lot mm. of the German sources have this similar to the it's very similar to the Spanish um, movement of conclusion where you step in you grab the hand and you you, you get the sword underneath as well so you're holding their hand yeah. and you've got the sword under and around so you can stab them at the same time and as yeah. you know Lange, he, he's got all kinds of uh, uh, fun techniques including breaking somebody's arm over your shoulder whilst holding the rapier but um, oh, he, in this one he, he spec- specifically says when you do this you need to lean forwards as you as you hold them and strike because otherwise they will step on your knee and break it. And then the, <laughs> so that, because, I love it. You know, they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Who would do that? But then you open uh, Palavicini, the Sicilian manual, and he shows the same thing, leaning as far back as he can. <laughs> Just like,
0: yes, break it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Let um, um, me go for it. I, and you know, Fiori shows us a kick to the knee and like Capo doesn't um, and I don't really know what happened to all the sort of kicks and throws and grapples and stuff that sort of should be there because we know that they fought that way because we have examples of duels that went really horribly wrong and you know all sorts of ghastliness happened and a lot of it was grappling and rolling around in the mud stabbing each other with knives and you know <laughs> it's not pretty um so it's, it's surprising to me that it's missing from the manuals
1: I, I think one or two places there there's something written that that grappling is basically beastly and you should you shouldn't do it something like that i don't i don't remember exactly i think it may have been a a, a view where were getting to a grapple is seen as sort of a, a a failing in your fencing technique okay you couldn't solve it with swords and you had to go for the grapple kind of thing
0: yeah, but that's a lot like, you know, uh, presuming to teach sort of self-defense, kind of street fighting stuff and leaving out the ground fighting because well, you shouldn't go to the ground because it's dangerous. Well, yes, you shouldn't go to the ground because it's dangerous, but if you end up on the ground, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um but yeah, and and I I'm guessing that, you know, a lot of these books are are written to kind of showcase the master's art rather than necessarily provide a complete martial arts education to the reader.
1: Oh, yeah, I agree. Though some of them do claim that that's the the purpose of their book is to, that the reader can learn um, to fence from. Sure. So,
0: um, Bruchius, for example, makes uh, but, yeah, but, 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 but several
1: points. <laughs> Brugios, he, he, he for example makes that claim that the really can learn to fence but then at several points he's like well and if you come to this situation then just ask your fencing master what to do
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes in the middle of a duel that's going to that's gonna work really well uh, but again but maybe the book is a complete like, introduction to how to fence but that maybe doesn't include grapples and kicks and punches and things like that which are maybe taught elsewhere and you know, a lot of these people were, were riding and would, um, you know, sometimes have to fight with swords on horseback, perhaps. Um, and Camerero has one mention of horses in the whole book, right? Where he, he says, you know, basically, it's a bit different on horseback because the office of the feet is taken by the horse, and you can whirl your arm about to your satisfaction. I'm paraphrasing loosely, but that is not <laughs> that is not a complete system of mounted combat. That is one passing mention in like 1610 when every gentleman was pretty much riding everywhere so you know one has to wonder what else is missing nope. marvellous well I, actually it's funny um, I asked what was sort of technically the last question uh, about 40 minutes ago <laughs> we have been rabbiting on in perfect podcasting style <laughs> uh, the specifics Ferro. that's uh, great
1: <laughs> i think it was only fair i'd ask you back some questions and, uh, and give As- you
0: absolutely advice. thank you very much for joining me today Rainier. it's been lovely to meet you
1: yeah thank you for having me it was a uh, good fun to to talk to you about these things
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rainier. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. And the show notes this week are especially useful because there's a whole bunch of Jaegerstock stuff in there. Because, yes, I have been cracking on with interpreting the stock and videoing myself swinging it about. So you don't want to miss that. Wiggle along for the show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. Of course, if you're already on my mailing list, you already know about the Jaegerstock stuff because I've been sharing those videos to the list already. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and wanted to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Rebecca Glass, who is a historical martial arts instructor and an avid baseball fan. Yes, those two things can go together. She has also appeared on the TV quiz show Jeopardy, so compared to that, the interview should be fairly low pressure. So... You don't want to miss that, so you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. And most especially, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Nothing beats a personal recommendation. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.